0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash Pax.
2: Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Louis Dean Valencia, Our conversation covered uh, several different topics, including the concept of alt-histories, or the purposeful misrepresentation of history to serve a specific and often political purpose. This idea is in no way limited to the history of the Spanish Civil War, or the Second World War, and it is a concept that can be found throughout history. I hope you enjoy this interview, and as always, you can find out more information about Dr. Valencia's work on the website at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Louis Dean Valencia, Assistant Professor of Digital History at Texas State University and author of Anti-Authoritarian Youth Culture in Franco with Spain, Clashing with Fascism. Dr. Valencia, how's it going?
0: It's going all right. Um, for Friday the 13th in 2020, <laughs> you know, we're surviving. It's good. It, it's a real combo. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> In a volume you edited that was published this year, you discuss the concept of alt-histories, the purposeful misconstruction of history to satisfy an agenda. Obviously, that spools out into a very broad topic, especially in the modern era and the rapid and endless spread of information. But looking specifically at Franco's regime, how did they use the past or their very specific interpretation of the past to bolster support for the continuation of their regime?
0: Yeah, I think that there are a couple of really great examples. Um, One, in my book, I actually talk about children's textbooks and the way that they sort of reframe uh, the Spanish Civil War. So one example is, we call it the Spanish Civil War today. But if you were a child under the Franco dictatorship in class, you would have learned it as the War of Liberation. So that whole framing of it, so instead of uh, the Spanish Civil War, It's the liberation of Spain from the leftist, communist, anti-Catholic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it changes the way that the whole uh, war is understood, or at least was an attempt to do so. And I think that's one of the most easy examples that I always have um, when talking about alt history and the Spanish Civil War. And other examples would be sort of the way that they describe who the parties were during the war. So, you might hear about the communists, you might hear about the anarchists, but you might not necessarily understand that uh, there were different varieties of communism, very different varieties of anarchism. It's all just sort of thrown into one giant category of left. And I think that's sort of one of the scare tactics that we see um, in the aftermath. But also, more generally, uh, there's this sort of tendency amongst people, generally in the Spanish population that had what some historians call historical amnesia, in which they just don't talk about the war. And I think that's also one of these elements here. So you have the adults who lived it, experienced it, or maybe young adults who lived and experienced it, um, not really talking about the war itself. And then you have young people who are learning of it as the war of liberation, which totally shifts the ways that people are understanding what this actually is. Um, another example I kind of think of offhand is uh, thinking about sort of the way that the dictatorship uh, used imagery from uh, Isabel and Ferdinand so back to the 1400s we go so this way back flag, there. way back there so it's this idea of how do we imagine our glorious past and so you see imagery from Isabel and Ferdinand in both Uh, The flag that Franco uses in the aftermath of the Civil War, that eagle, um, big black eagle, it's virtually uh, identical to what you would see on Isabel and Ferdinand's throne uh, in uh, Segovia, Spain. So if you ever had the chance to go to Segovia to see their throne room there, it's just almost exactly pulled right from there. And so they're using these imageries that are meant to sort of show the greatness of Spain, And of course, uh, it's curious because at that point, Spain doesn't even have enough money really to enter World War II, right? The coffers are empty. The coffers are empty, but they're trying to have this uh, image of grandeur, and so I think that's one of the ways that you also see this sort of what I like to think of as a deformation of history. Uh, It's an entirely made up idea of what Spain's actual situation was at the time, but also. Trying to drag out the history of people like Isabel and Ferdinand, or El Cid, um who was this uh, mercenary for hire in the Middle Ages, also used to sort of bolster this image of Spain's greatness. Okay,
1: yeah. So, so they're they're almost like recasting all of the events and and taking everything that happened in between when Spain really was like a very powerful and, and large empire and sort of uh, recasting everything in between is, oh, bad people that we're all going to group into one big group. We're in charge here.
0: Right, exactly. And so you basically erase most of the history of the 19th century, uh, You which uh, Spain was actually on the forefront of sort of liberal thinking in the, across the whole 19th century. And that's one thing that has often forgotten that Spain had, parliamentary systems. There was the first republic in the 19th century, a real attempt at trying to move toward a liberal democracy, which sort of is just thrown under the bus, under the Franco dictatorship.
1: Um, As you just mentioned, and I think in one of your earlier books I read, um, in the last decades of the Franco dictatorship, which is kind of where some of your focus is, um, obviously many of the people there were not alive to experience the Civil War. And they'd also been brought up in this education system that was telling them a very specific story uh, about the Civil War. So what was the legacy that they knew of, of pre-Civil War Spain? Or were they able to find out what was maybe closer to the truth?
0: Yeah, there's actually some really great examples. Uh, strangely enough, there's a group of, we'll say, people who were full-on phalangists, so supporters of the fascist party in Spain early on who slowly start to become supporters of a democratic Spain. And so it's through even people like um, the person who wrote the Spanish national anthem, the Francoist anthem, who start to work with youth groups to change the way that their uh, history is being told. So you have secret poetry groups that are being organized where poets from before the Civil War who might have lost the limelight can talk a little bit about their experiences, but it would be through poetry. So it was always sort of this coded language. And you also see other examples like that where uh, they look at elements of the past that were a lot more uh, liberatory. So for example, the carnival celebrations that Spain had and has today, again, uh, were totally uh, pressed under the Franco dictatorship, made illegal in most parts of Spain. And slowly, there's anthropologists and young people and all of these uh, groups that are trying to look at, well, what were our traditions before the dictatorship? And those start to come back slowly. And so you see sort of, um, and the carnival is really important because you would have instances where it was pretty normal for a man to dress up in drag uh, for a carnival. And that would have been a big no-no under Franco's dictatorship. And so all these sort of transgressive ideas of the past, of this more uh, pluralistic liberal Spain, um, started to seep through again through sort of young people trying to figure out, well, what were our traditions before the dictatorship? And hearing it also from people who, Were able to use coded language to describe it.
1: And, uh, you know, as, as these people are, or learning about or sharing information about the past, you know, how did they view the civil war? You know, it greatly altered Spanish society. And so was there a connection of this sort of counterculture movement in the later to like the um, to the Republican effort of the 1930s, or were they kind of, um, what they were hoping for Spain was more of a, even more progressive view or, um, you know, were, did they see these mo- movements of the 1930s as failures really?
0: I think it's a combination of things. So when you're looking at the sixties and seventies, you have a couple things happening simultaneously. Uh, Span uh, Young Spanish people are looking at American soldiers who are coming into Spain because Spain now has several military bases across the country and they're, listening to the music that the soldiers bring with them. And so they have this idea of rock and roll. Uh, They have the in the 60s a better idea of like the hippie movement. In the 70s, punk culture starts seeping in. So all of these things start building layers of the ways that um, young Spaniards are seeing the possibility of what youth culture can look like. But at the same time, they're oftentimes, especially in these more uh, progressive um, cases with student groups, They're a little bit skeptical of American imperialism, et cetera. So they're not necessarily buying into all of it, but they're looking to what were the things that were um, traditions that were Spanish that they could also draw from. So you see a lot of uh, democratic socialist groups starting to come around, which was drawing specifically from the 1930s. You have anarchist groups also formulating in the late sixties and really hitting the ground in the early seventies, Franco doesn't die till 1975, so it would have been still very dangerous for them to be engaging with these things, and even communist ideas. Uh, oftentimes, the students who were looking at these uh, political ideologies from Spain in the past, they would be talking with people who were uh, alive then and also reading the materials that they would have been reading back in the 30s. And so it wasn't that there was just a total break from the past, but it's also these Elements of socialism, communism, and particularly anarchism that start to meld their way into this sort of hippie progressive punk culture that grows up in the 1970s in Spain, which is really when a lot of this happens.
2: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, how are these sort of groups uh, or these individuals viewed by the government? Like, is this a case of, oh, those silly young kids, or is it, you know, that we need to go arrest these
0: people and put them in prison? (laughs) It's both. Um, So... And it depends about upon the type of material that you're producing. So, uh, a lot of what my research looks at is youth-produced uh, fanzines, or these sort of photocopied, um, put st- uh, glued together magazines. Uh, and oftentimes, fanzines were, when the way I like to think of it is the new technology of the time, right? The photocopy, <laughs> right? We we think of it as a little silly now, but At the moment, it was a new technology that allowed for young Spaniards to um, really produce and publish things without having to go through a censorship process. And so those types of publications would be harder to identify who made them in the first place. And so there was a way for young people to get around sort of the censorship uh, rules or norms or laws um, of the period, but also they were making films, they were reading comics, they were making their own comics and distributing them. And so a lot of those were less, um, it was easier for the young people to get away with those sort of publications. However, if it was more explicitly political, so if you saw something that was saying uh, the anarchist youth party or the communist youth group or what, what have you, those would be the ones that would be more likely to be shut down rather quickly. There were a couple of, um, sort of, uh, there's dozens of these groups, right? And it's in every city, there's one or two. So to kind of say that they're all doing this is, um, oversimplifying it, but there were several of these groups that would have these actions that they would plan. They would start organizing, distributing material in pamphlet form, and they would get arrested. And a lot of times it was uh, oftentimes women in particular that would be getting the brunt of this. And they would have uh, women that would be arrested, uh, young women, and who were oftentimes the ones that were producing the propaganda, as they called it. And so it's kind of a combination of things. It's um, easy for the, it it was easier for the government to go after the groups that were more specifically saying we're communists, anarchists, what have you. But the other types of things were just like, oh, these are just kids making comic books about sex and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, drinking happening and they're listening to music. Okay, they're just being kids. But in reality, that was, I think, the more uh, dangerous thing for the government because it started to have the effect of young people thinking, Oh well, I can get away with this. Uh this type of thing which was maybe sexually progressive, maybe there was uh elements there referencing drug use or just sort of an alternative to the way that Francoism would have allowed young people to live their lives if they were if they had their way. And so it's kind of a combination of those things simultaneously. Um And did
1: the sort of experiences of these groups change over the period? Because I mean, Franco was there for a while. um, Yes. Did their experiences, just in general, of people you know that weren't going along with the regime, did it change over the decades?
0: Especially, you know,
1: as it came right up to the end.
0: Absolutely. So, in the nineteen, so for example, in the nineteen fifties, young people would uh, basically. Uh, Transgress if they were in a university setting by going to philosophy lectures or poetry readings, this sort of thing. And so it was very difficult uh, to really pin down what they were doing. They would even um, publish in the major newspaper of Madrid, poetry gathering on the university of Madrid campus, blah, blah, blah. And it's right there going through the censorship process. Nobody picking up like more than like, Oh, kids having a poetry reading but it would be really a subversive act that they're getting people together to read and discuss uh, ideas that would have been dangerous to the dictatorship. By the 60s, you have young people that are also maybe university age, maybe in their 20s or 30s, and oftentimes they're publishing under things like uh, Christian Democratic magazines. So the dictatorship, one of its core tenets is you have to be Catholic, right? to be a good Catholic is to be a good Spaniard. And so they would use Christianity as sort of a guide. It's like, we're just a democratic Christian magazine, you know, um, no no big deal. Uh, There's this one magazine called Cuadernos para el Dialogo, uh, notebooks for dialogue. And later on the editor uh, in his uh, discussion of it, he said, "Dialogo, or dialogue was always sort of a euphemism for democracy. And so when somebody would read Notebooks for Democracy, a Christian Democratic magazine, they would think, okay, that's what I'm interested in. And that would be broadly tolerated by the dictatorship, mostly because it was good to show to their new American allies that, look, we do allow a little bit of something here. Right? It's like kind of the token, like this is the Democratic uh, youth magazine. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Uh, by the 70s, you just have, like, sex in the streets, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: So you mentioned the Americans. So as a person who is a pretty big fan of superhero comics, it would be remiss of me not to ask about Superman. Uh, So some of your writing um, is about Superman within Spain, and it sounds like the Francoist regime had some problems with Superman. What did they hate about the Man of Steel?
0: Superman was one of the most dangerous, threats to Spanish youth, according to uh, most of the prominent censors in Spain. So there was a whole massive campaign to clamp down on the Man of Steel. So I'm a huge Superman fan, too. So we've, we we got to go into this. Um, so in the aftermath of, we'll say, the Spanish Civil War in the 1940s, uh, there was a brief moment where there were some Superman comics that were being published in Spain, most of them coming uh, directly from Argentina. And it was curious because uh, Superman was wearing the colors of the Republic. So usually we think of red, yellow, and blue for Superman. Uh, This Superman had red, yellow, and sort of a slight bluish purple to it. And so it really hearkened to the Republic the dictatorship clamps down on Superman, bans him um, entirely for the better part of a decade and a half. But then in the 1950s, you see Superman reappear in Spain and he's massively popular. Several of the surveys of youth uh, during the period, because the government monitored what everybody was reading, right? Mm-hmm. Which said that roughly uh, in the high 90% of all young people are reading Superman comics. So this is, This isn't just like, um, it's like for a young person today who is on TikTok, 98% of kids, Uh right? So reading Superman comics would have been that popular. And the government disliked this. So I've looked in the archives um, in Spain and found censor reports explaining specifically what was good and bad about Superman comics. And number one is he seems to have a feminine quality about himself. So there are uh, images of him. Uh, in some of the comic books of the 1950s, it was funny for the American audience to see Superman in an apron um, making uh, food for a super baby. And that's like one comic from the 1950s. And it was just like a haphazard thing. Um, and there was like, he has feminine qualities. He also wears this brilliant, colorful, tight costume. He has a double identity. And essentially, the censor reports would say Superman was gay. Double secret identity. He wears bright, flamboyant colors. He is uh, talking to young kids and making food for them. He's basically a woman. And I guess that's super problematic
1: in Spain with their views on gender and,
0: you know, uh, sort of
1: societal norms.
0: Right. They're... Very strict traditionalist society under Franco. Um, This would have been totally out of the norm to have a man in tights with a double identity. Like he could only be gay from the Francoist perspective. Mm -hmm. And then Lois Lane uh, would wear pants. I know. Just wild. Lois Lane. The travesty of pants. The travesty of pants. Lois Lane is wearing pants. Obviously, she's a lesbian. And the it's funny because uh it's just written out there in plain letters like lois lane is a lesbian in the uh archives and you're just like wow like this uh, this threat of a woman who wore pants and was known for ev- every once in a while telling superman like who what's what was a threat and so there was a massive campaign put out to make superman comics illegal across spain so There was a heavy fine. If you were um, distributing this type of material, it would have been considered uh, something that you could go to jail for. But the curious thing is that young people um, decided that they weren't going to have it. And they just were trading their illegal black market Superman comics, uh, despite the censorship of them. And so you have these comic book markets that young kids are playing with um, trading their comics. And it goes on for the better part of a decade uh, where young people are reading comic books that had been made illegal. And if you look at some of the reports, even after the comics are made illegal in um, 19 uh, in the early 1960s, by the 70s, the numbers are pretty much at the same rate. He is still the most popular comic book um, amongst kids in that range that are not, that is a superhero comic book. So they're still reading him, even though it's been illegal. And so you see newspaper campaigns talking about the dangers of Superman, and it's a pretty massive project. And it's funny because it also shows sort of uh, these fascistic norms that are, you have to have a traditional patriarchal society where women main goal is to take care of the family and to produce children for uh the nation. And so Lois Lane is absolutely opposite of that. She doesn't have a kid, she has her own job, she tells Superman what to do and Superman's his closet case basically. So all of these things are dangerous to a fascistic regime. And I think that's one way to sort of also kind of get an idea of the subtle ways that the dictatorship was fascist is that it's also uh, at the everyday level, you want to teach your young kids to be a good Spaniard is to not have these sort of uh, progressive ideas of the roles of women or men for that matter.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear uh, that kind of stuff and and how sort of at, at a grassroots level, there were still fascist tendencies within the regime when at, you know, at this time they are trying, I'm assuming very much to be like, hey, we like America, you know. Be our friends.
0: Right. Yeah, no. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of historians have grappled with is sort of how to characterize uh, Franco's brand of fascism. So earlier on, a lot of historians were saying, well, it's not really fascism. Uh, They didn't go after any Jews. Also remembering that Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. So (laughs) there were not many Jews to go after, Um, but they were... uh, demonstrating other sort of fascistic tendencies, such as anti-leftism, very, very only uh, traditional views of women, uh, blatant racism, these sort of things as well. And so it's um, a different type of fascism, we'll say, than the the Italian case or the German case for sure. But it's one that we might see a little bit of what would happen if fascism had survived 40 years and i think whenever we start to put it in those kind of perspectives we have a better idea
1: it's uh it's fascism that has had time to germinate within a in a society i guess and, right. and make it past the war point which nobody else really did exactly okay uh, uh that's all the questions i have uh thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to me today it's been uh it's been a great conversation
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. I love the podcast and what you do here. So thank you.